Amen. He is alive indeed. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 25 uh, as we continue our series through Matthew. You will remember um, as you turn there that we are in the midst of the fifth of five discourses that Matthew uses to give structure and direction to his account of the good news of God's great love in Jesus. You'll remember that the first discourse is popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount, and that famously begins with what we know as the Beatitudes or the Blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, etc. And this is the last of the five discourses known as the last day's discourse, and it begins with the famous seven woes or curses pronounced against the Pharisees. Matthew is the only one that records that with such length. But it's important to know, while we know them as the woes or curses pronounced against the Pharisees, it's really the woes and the curses pronounced against the spirit of every age as it was embodied in that age in the Pharisees. Matthew's point has been this, that Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the door through which you will enter either into the promised blessings of God or into the curses of God. By recognizing and responding in trusting and loving faith to Jesus as the Son of God, the Lamb of God come to take away your sin and the sin of the world, that we enter into the promised shalom of God's blessings. What the New Testament refers to as the new heavens and the new earth, dwelling with Jesus, unhindered by our own sin. However, if we stubbornly refuse to recognize and respond to him as such, then the reality is that we usher ourselves into the everlasting curse of God, the everlasting separation from God. That is part of what is going on here in this last day's discourse. Today's passage brings us to the parable of the ten virgins, having exhorted us in the previous section to wait, to stay awake, to watch for the appearance of Jesus. Jesus now tells a parable that focuses on what is involved in waiting, what is involved in watching for Jesus, for the task, listen to me, the task of waiting the gospel call to wait, to watch for Jesus is no easy passive task. It's not like tubing the Hiawassee, but requires the difficult and active engagement of our entire being. So with that as a run-up uh, to the passage, read with me. 
Matthew chapter 25, the first 13 verses. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here he comes! Here comes the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Brothers and sisters, this is the good word of God's amazing and steadfast grace to us. So let us go as his children in Jesus and ask that he would help us to hear him and respond well. So, Father, we come to this, your word, and this part of this hour that you have set aside. And we pray, as your children coming to you in Jesus, that by your Spirit, you would strengthen us to hear you speak and equip us to recognize that these are words of a loving Father. And Father, we pray that you would help us to respond accordingly. Father, for we are your children who hunger and thirst for your righteousness, which is ours in Jesus. And so it is in his name that we come. Amen. Waiting makes up a lot of our life. Waiting by some accounts, over the course of an average lifetime, we spend anywhere from three to five years waiting. Just waiting. Patricia Sanchez has described it this way, waiting is an inevitable and necessary aspect of human life that most of us don't relish. We wait in lines. We wait to purchase groceries, to be served at restaurants, to be attended to in a bank, at stop signs, at traffic signals, at amusement parks, to see a play or a film. We wait for flowers to grow and to bloom. We wait for babies to be born. We wait for wounds to heal. We wait for bread to rise. We wait for cheese to age. We wait for children to mature. We wait for friends to call. We wait for love to deepen. We wait. And we wait. And we wait. We wait in traffic. We wait at doctor's office. We wait for parents to make decisions. Oh, my word, would they just decide. Talk to your dad. Talk to your mom. We wait for children to obey. 
I'm not sure which of those two takes longer. We wait for committees to take action. Probably that one takes the longest. We wait for him to pop the question and we wait through that eternity of silence for her to answer. We wait for kids to grow up. We wait for kids to come home. We wait for mom and dad to send money. We wait for phone calls and we wait for returned texts. We wait for graduation. We wait for the last day of school. We wait for job offers. We wait for the final buzzer. For the arrival of grandparents, in the case of our children. Parents, in the case of some of us. And in-laws, in the case of some of us. As statisticians have estimated that in a lifetime of 70 years, we can spend up to five years waiting. Last week, the passage exhorted us to stay alert, to watch, and to wait. This week, this week's passage shows us that there is more to waiting, though, than just flipping through Southern Living magazine or playing solitaire on your phone. There is a way to wait and there is a way to watch that actually prepares us for the arrival of the King and the celebration to follow. And... By extension, there is a way to wait and there is a way to watch that leaves us unprepared for the king's arrival and so unequipped, ill-equipped for the celebration to follow. There is a way to wait and watch which will find us excluded from the party. It's helpful to remember what the New Testament teaches us about the return of Christ. Remember that the return of Christ, according to the New Testament, will be unexpected. It will be personal. It will be visible. It will be audible. And the return of Christ will be to gather to him his own and to judge the unaware and the unprepared to welcome his own into his presence. In other words, it will be much like the arrival of a first century groom coming to claim his bride, which, of course, serves as the background of our parable here, a background that would have been very familiar to the first audience but is somewhat unfamiliar to us. First century weddings, um, there's that ceremony, but it begins actually sometimes weeks before, sometimes months before, in what we know as the betrothal period. In the betrothal period in the ancient world, as was actually the case with Mako and I in Japan, it actually begins with a ceremony a public ceremony in which it is publicly stated at this time that this woman and this man will be married. They are betrothed. They are entrusted. They are committed in faithfulness to one another to become husband and wife. It's a public ceremony and it is a celebration usually in the bride's home 
or in the bride's village. The groom then leaves, returning to his father's house, returning to his father's village, where he will prepare the place where he and his bride will begin their new life together. Often he will go home and he will add to his father's house the rooms that he believes will be necessary for their new life together, or perhaps building a separate house on the same property. And when that place nears completion, he will send messengers saying the time is near to his betrothed, to his bride, so that they can begin to make preparations for the arrival of the groom to take his bride. And so the bride and the bridemaids begin in earnest their preparations. He's coming. The groom is coming. The day is nearing. The bridal celebration, the wedding feast. It is this arrival that we have in view here. And as the groom nears, you see, all the bridesmaids are there in waiting and watching him in order to go out to meet him and then escort him into the house where there will be a great celebration before the groom then takes her back from her home as now his new bride to the home that he has prepared for her, led in torch-lit procession, usually late at night following the celebration, or another ceremony and feasting at his own home. And here's the catch. The precise timing of all of this is uncertain. There are any number of social and traditional and logistical factors that delay often the coming of the groom. And so it may be hours, or it may be days. What's more, this whole event, the betrothal and then the arrival of the groom and the celebration and then the return of the bride and groom to the home is, is perhaps one of the most honored ceremonies of the day. So much so that if there was a wedding party passing by on the road, rabbis would stop their teaching in order to honor the wedding party. It's not unlike, but perhaps more intense, the southern tradition of traffic stopping when a funeral procession passes. When you ask people why they do that, they say this is how we, a way we have of honoring the families, to honoring the, this important occasion in the family's life. And it was like that with these wedding ceremonies. All of this, the comings and the goings, the imprecision, the waiting and the watching, was all quite common. So common as to be expected. So, now, with that in the background, read the text. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, that is, ten maidens or ten bridesmaids, who took their lamps and went out 
on behalf of the bride as part of their responsibility to await the bridegroom. They heard that he was coming, now they go, they've made preparation, they go out to wait for him, to watch for him. Now of the ten, five were foolish and five were wise. What was the difference? The foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. It doesn't tell us why they took no oil. But perhaps the arrival of the messenger saying the groom is coming had the understandable effect on them of saying, oh, he's just over the rise or he's just around the corner. Quick, I'll grab my lamp with whatever oil is in it and I will run out. But alas, verse 5, the bridegroom. The bridegroom was delayed. They became drowsy and sleep and slept. Notice all of them did. The difference between the foolish and the wise were not, is not that they became drowsy and slept. The difference comes to us, is revealed to us in verse 8. The shout came, the bridegroom has come, verse 7, they all rose and trimmed their lamps. And then the foolish ones realized, oh my, I don't have enough oil. My lamp is flickering. My lamp is going out. I need more oil. And so they ask, give us some of your oil. You see, the difference between wise and foolish is that they were not prepared. And this is where it's it's important that we remember that, that the timing of the comings and goings of the wedding party is not precise and that was common and to be expected. In other words, their lack of preparedness, as one commentator says, is culpable. It's culpable negligence. They understood their responsibility as bridesmaid to be prepared. They understood their responsibility to watch. They understood that it was their responsibility to be prepared to light the bridegroom's way into the home and then to light the bridegroom and his bride's way home. But these foolish maids just grabbed their lamp and ran. Oh, he'll be here soon. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. But he didn't come soon. And so their lamps started running dry. And the flame started to flicker. And they had no oil with which to light the torches. The wise maidens were prepared. They were expecting these kinds of delays because they were so common. It's kind of like saying here at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, we're going to start at 6 o'clock and knowing that it's going to be 6.15 or 6.30 before anyone even starts arriving because that's just how we are. It's just common. There's all kinds of delays. And we're prepared for it. It doesn't surprise us. It surprises our guests, but it doesn't surprise us. So as you're getting into the parable and you're understanding the dynamics of this, I do want you to note something. Note this. One, 
very first verse of chapter 25. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Remember that this entire discourse is addressed to his disciples and the crowds. Jesus' intended audience is his disciples and those crowds that are around them. And here he makes it explicit, saying the kingdom of heaven will be like these ten virgins. These ten virgins are considered within the kingdom as part of the kingdom of heaven. The reason I emphasize that is because it's easy for us to read this and say, oh, well, I'm glad that here I am. I'm one of the wise. But what he's saying is, be careful. Because the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, some of them wise and some of them foolish. Because some of them are prepared and some of them are presumptuous. And it will be. Previous times where he's spoken about the kingdom of heaven, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like. But now he's saying kingdom of heaven will be like. On that great day when Jesus Christ returns, this is what will be revealed about citizenship in heaven. And that would become more explicit later in the discourse. And that is why we encounter throughout this discourse, especially with increasing intensity over the last half of it, this repeated and therefore emphatic exhortation to wait, to watch, to be prepared. Because, brothers and sisters, please hear me. Our tendency is toward dormancy. The tendency of my heart and the tendency of your heart is toward lethargy and comfort and complacency. And Jesus, the loving Lord that he is, wants us to know how dangerous that is. Wake up. Remain alert. Wait. Watch. You see, the problem is not sleep. The problem isn't even that they didn't have lamps or oil. They had their lamps and they had oil. The problem is that they weren't prepared for the common, commonly known contingencies of the whole ceremony. They had been, they had been careless. They'd been lazy. They'd been presumptuous. Thus, one commentator writes this. The foolish maidens have fatally presumed that an invitation to the party guarantees their participation in the party, regardless of whether or not they have prepared for the party. What's more is that their culpable neglect has put everyone at risk. Some people reading this say, well, those wise, those wise maidens sure are selfish, because that's partly because we are reading it with our individualistic Western eyes. But the maidens are representative of the bride. Their actions are on behalf of the bride. Their actions are responsibilities on behalf of the bride and her family. If the wise maidens give, them, give the foolish maiden, maidens their oil, it is possible, perhaps even likely 
that all ten of them will not have enough oil for the procession, and then the bride will be ashamed, the family will be ashamed, the groom will be insulted, and great disgrace will fall upon the entire village. The wisdom of the wise maidens is not selfishness. It's love for the bride and the groom and their families. We must care for them. Go quickly. Hopefully you can buy some before the groom arrives. You see, brothers and sisters, it is not enough. And I know it's hard to hear that kind of language. It is not enough to have received with gladness the invitation to the party, as wonderful as that is. The honor and the gladness of having received that invitation then should compel an eager and glad and excited preparation for the party. Receive invitations to birthday parties and to dinner parties and to graduation parties and to retirement parties. You receive the invitation a month or two months ahead of time. You receive an invitation sometimes six months ahead of time for a wedding. Save the date. Make preparations. The date is coming. And even for those sorts of things, already plans are put in place. I can't make such and such on that date. I have a commitment. We can't travel on that date. We have a commitment. What am I going to wear on that date? How much money do we need? Et cetera, et cetera. The failure of the foolish bridesmaids is the culpable arrogance that is ignorant of the great honor that has been bestowed upon them. Resulting in their grave neglect of their responsibilities, which then dishonors the bride, the groom, and their families. Wow! That's heavy. And so we have to ask, how then shall we wait? How then shall we watch? How then shall we prepare faithfully? How shall we maintain our lamp and maintain a reserve of oil and trim our wick and keep the flame burning in anticipation of the groom's arrival. One commentator answers the question this way. We need no secret guide to staying ready for Christ's return. The counsel of Christ is familiar. We should pray as Jesus taught us. We should pray as Jesus taught us. We should remember his teachings. We should learn from his example. We should imitate his kindness and patience and boldness. We should identify and dethrone our gods, whether wealth, honor, or security. That's what scripture calls confession and repentance. He continues, above all, we should embrace the gospel daily We believe, as we have just recited, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior. We live in the light of His grace daily. We seek mercy when we sin or fail, and we extend mercy to others who sin or fail us. 
We embrace the gospel. To embrace the gospel is to receive it as the supreme form of God's love. The gospel reminds us that no creature can satisfy our longings as God can. Work, achievement, family, play, and pleasure, he concludes, have their place, but they are good servants and poor masters. In other words, we keep ourselves ready. We keep ourselves prepared by our lives together of obeying faith. Lives together characterized by, for example, as Paul exhorts us, considering one another as more significant than ourselves, submitting to and serving one another, bearing with one another, speaking to one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, that is, according to the patterns and priorities of Christ himself in Scripture. Peter exhorts us to welcome the stranger. James exhorts us to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. These are clear and basic practices by which we keep ourselves prepared and watchful. Why? Because as we practice the patterns of Jesus, as we practice the habits of Jesus, as we practice the words of Jesus, as we practice the accents of Jesus, we become increasingly familiar with him so that when he appears, we will recognize him. In short, we keep our lamps burning and our oil ready through regular time in the Word. Brothers and sisters, hear that. I've had conversations with people to use the language of our parable in which they say, my oil is running low, my wick is running dry, my flame is going out, I'm so tired. And in the course of conversation, it becomes clear they're not opening the Bible. They're not reading the word of Jesus. It's like having a conversation with someone who just says, I'm just so hungry. I'm so hungry. Well, have you gone to the cafeteria? Oh, my word, no, I couldn't go to the cafeteria. I don't like that food. How hungry are you? Oh, I'm dying. Have you eaten? Nah, there's nothing good to eat. We prepare, we keep our lamps burning and our oil ready through regular time in the Word, through prayer, through worship, through the celebration of sacrament, through gospel-saturated fellowship, by imitating Jesus together in acts of sacrificial service and mercy. You see, brothers and sisters, we listen to Jesus in his word so that we may listen for Jesus in our interactions one with another in order that we may walk and talk like Jesus in communion with him so that we may be agents of Jesus in his continuing mission. That is, so that we can join him in celebratory, torch-lit procession to the marriage feast of the Lamb, and beyond to his new home that he has prepared for us.
That's why at CVPC, we believe that we have been called by the grace of our Father in Jesus for lives together of imitating Jesus in worship together and prayer together and sacrament together and fellowship together and sacrificial service together to and with the least and the lost and the lonely, beginning with one another, but overflowing from that to neighbors and strangers and even enemies. You see, brothers and sisters, our life together as a congregation is a part of us watching together. Me watching with you, you watching with me for the appearing of the King. Practicing together the life of Christ and fellowship with Christ so that we may know Christ and recognize Christ and welcome Christ and enter with Christ and celebrate with Christ. Brothers and sisters, the bridegroom has sent word. He is on his way. Let us be prepared that we may see him, recognize him, Rejoice with him and dwell with him. And so, Father, we come and we ask.